Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm Colm Quinn, and in this episode, we explore a topic that's traditionally only within reach if you're some sort of billionaire and or Bond villain. How to build your own island. As I'm sure you've heard, both on this podcast, our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, and really any news source, island building is a big deal in the South China Sea, with whole fortresses being built where once there were just rocks. China is the main culprit, but it's not the only country in the region looking to build up its presence in this highly contested waterway. So on this episode, we'll be talking to maritime experts as well as regional experts to get a sense of what it takes to build your own island and in the process, get a glimpse of just how much political, financial and engineering effort you really have to put in to create your own island. Starting with mechanics, we turn to a maritime expert from the University of Miami who studied island construction and its effects. I'm John McManus, a professor of marine biology and ecology at the Rosenstiel School at the University of Miami. Professor McManus says the first thing you need is a suitable place to build. You need to have a, uh, a stable platform. You need to be building on something that, for instance, doesn't have a cave underneath it. The place that uh, the uh, People's Republic of China, PRC, has built on are, are coral reefs. Now, a lot of people think a coral reef is, a, is actually just an ecosystem, but uh, strictly speaking, a coral reef is the substrate that supports coral and and seagrass and sometimes mangrove ecosystems. And this structure uh, is usually thousands of years old or or older, and it's made up of little bits and pieces of skeletal material from uh, coral-dominated ecosystems. So it builds up uh, slowly over time, and some of this uh, material uh, comes from corals, others from... uh, seaweeds and uh, microorganisms, and the uh, result is that the ecosystem becomes a machine for producing sediments, which range from boulders to gravel to sand. So the sand over time uh, uh, spontaneously calcifies with with itself so that it sort of crusts up. It's, It's a lot like sometimes if you have a drink that has ice cubes in it, the ice cubes all seal together. And it's, it's a process, something like that, but it's actually um, remarkably poorly understood. So this is what a coral reef is, and these were classic uh, huge coral reefs in the, uh, in the Spratlead areas. So <clears throat> what they did, and I actually have uh, one of the publications from their report on Prairie Cross Reef, um, they went out, uh, uh, some geologists went there and looked at it from the standpoint is, is this a stable enough platform to build uh, a multi-ton structure? And so they did things uh, such as testing the, the, uh, the substrate with uh, uh, sort of a, a, a pile-driving approach called heavy dynamic penetration tests, and they determined from this that this was a, a, a peachy keen place to build an island. Um, now, of course, to do that, they had to build over uh, some of these ecosystems. So for some time, we've been um, 
hearing from the uh, People's Republic of China's government that uh, they only built on places that had dead coral. Well, it turns out on analysis that um, uh, we're able to show that these places had been struck by uh, Chinese uh, fishers who were digging up the bottom and killing sand, uh, corals and other organisms to get giant clams. So indeed, they were looking at something that had been killed uh, by Chinese fishers uh, as recently as a year before they started building the islands. So what are the basic steps in building an island? So what you're supposed to do after you start building is <laughs> you're supposed to have uh, separation between uh, gravel and sand, and you want to build the gravelly areas on the outside and fill the inside with sand. Uh, what we see from satellite imagery is that China was actually using uh, enormous um, dredgers. They have a, a very large fleet of very, very big dredgers, uh, hundreds of feet long. And they were digging up this, the loose sand that's on the shallower portions of adjacent coral reefs and pulling it up and blowing it up into uh, sort of piles of sand. After that, they would uh, build a, a wall around uh, that pile of sand and start filling it in further. So <clears throat> most of what they've got are, are, uh, is going to be sand and gravel that they either um, uh, sucked up naturally from the bottom uh, as well as uh, coral that was ground up and sometimes uh, consolidated reef substrate that was ground up and uh, pulled up and blown into these structures. So they, they would be doing this, and of course, water is leaking out the whole time, and it's blowing sand and silt in many different directions. And uh, they piled it up and then paved over it. And what we've seen recently in some satellite imagery is that they've buried some, some large structures underground uh, some of which are probably water and some of which may be other things. And they've buried those and they've built uh, runways on, uh, on a couple of these, uh, these islands. Much of the satellite imagery shown of the South China Sea features dredging ships surrounding the growing islands. So what is a dredge and how does it work? Well, a dredge is a machine that basically vacuums up or picks up material uh, sediment from uh, underwater and puts it somewhere. You use dredges if you're building a channel or if you're clearing out an area or, in this case, if you're building a, uh, an island. And they, they, were, they made heavy use of something called a cutter suction dredge which is uh, like a boat with a long, huge straw in the front, which is like a a disco ball with um, diagonal grooves uh, into which teeth project. And that disco ball rolls around and, and grinds up the bottom as the hose sucks up all of this uh, material. And then you blast it uh, using floating pipes. Uh, you, you get it near the shore, and then you blast it either uh, onto piles, uh, which are then transferred into the reef or uh, into the island, or you, you actually uh, can uh, pump it directly through the air. It's called rain bowling, uh, to, so that the material rains down. And we see all of these uh, techniques in play and lots and lots of different dredging machines.
Having piled masses of sand and gravel through the rainbowing technique, China used graders and more traditional equipment to flatten the mound of sand and sediment before building structures. It's going to be necessary, of course, to flatten uh, this material, so they're going to have the usual sorts of uh, graders and, and uh, bucket lifters and trucks and all that sort of thing at play, and they do appear in some imagery. So, yes, they, they had a lot of other equipment. But the main thing are these very large dredgers. The, the company, uh, CCCC Tanjian uh, Dredging Company Limited, uh, is heavily advertising now, trying to get uh, new clients because they have this wonderful experience. Greg Poling, director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS, says China's construction in the South China Sea took as much as 18 months. It started to come to light around the spring of 2014, and looking back at data, tracking the dredges and whatnot, we can say it started probably at the very end of 2013. So the the bulk of the work happened in a period of about 18 months from, say, the holiday period 2013-2014 through around August of, of 2015, and then there was just some touching up. And how much does it cost to build your own island on top of a reef? Yeah, well, <clears throat> building this thing uh, is going to cost a lot of money, and it- I've been trying to figure out, you know, some basis for this. It turns out there's a recent publication for the cost of building breakwaters, <clears throat> and uh, this is in an article that's explaining that coral reefs, uh, which can take out about 97% of wave energy, um, are, are wonderful at being <clears throat> breakwaters, and to replace them, you've got to uh, put a lot of money in. Now, <clears throat> the cost per <clears throat> linear meter uh, of building a breakwater seems to run from about $400 to about $200,000. So it's highly variable. But uh, if you just um, do some some estimates and and scale things up, we're we're talking uh, certainly uh, more than a billion dollars to build this thing. I doubt that um, any country other than China could have afforded to do this. The, the Chinese defense budget uh, runs about 140 to 145 billion dollars a year, and you you wouldn't expect them to be spending uh, as high as some of the estimates that I came up with, <laughs> because that would completely drain their defense budget. But certainly they they were paying billions of dollars for this operation. For China, spending a few billion on construction is a bargain, considering the potential resources on the seabed and benefits of de facto control, Greg Poling explains. Well, let's, well, well, since we're talking about artificial islands, let's start with China. The objective is to establish de facto control over this entire space of water and airspace and seabed within the so-called Nine Dash Line, the claim that demarcates China's uh, land grab, so to speak, water grab in the South China Sea. Now, to do that, they're investing in what folks call dual-use infrastructure. Uh, radar facilities, various support buildings, airstrips, ports, dredging out harbors, all of these things that do have civilian purposes but are clearly being built to military specifications. One of the ones that catches most attention are these airstrips. It already has an airstrip farther north in the Paracel Islands on Woody Island. It's building three, at least one of which is operational, um, in the Spratly Islands. Now, each of these is about 3,000 meters long. That's long enough to accommodate bombers, fighter jets, it is overkill would be uh, an understatement if you're talking about just civilian use. And the same goes 
for things like the ports that are being built. So primarily these are about force projection, even if force projection in peacetime. Greg also points out that other countries in the South China Sea have incentive to construct islands and engage in land reclamation, and several have done so. Sure. I mean, it's worth noting that China's not alone out here in putting in military infrastructure, nor alone in undertaking reclamation. I mean, what is different is the scale and scope of what China's doing and the speed of it. The Vietnamese occupy by far the most features, about 27, depending on how you count where the bounds of the Spratly Islands are, and most of those are primarily military features. But they're very small pillboxes. You know, they take a concrete pillbox, bunker-type structure, they sink it onto one piece of a coral reef, they leave the rest of it untouched. In some cases, maybe they spread out a little bit with very, uh, well, crude reclamation uh, in comparison to what China does. And they have things like small-scale radar and helipads and all of that. They have one very tiny airstrip out there. Um, for the Filipinos, there are small military garrisons that all of their occupied features, all nine of them, uh, but only the one, Situ uh, Island, or Pagasa, as they call it, has an airstrip, and there's very little military structure anywhere else. Uh, much the same is true of the Taiwanese. They occupy one feature, uh, Ituaba, which is the largest of the features, but they pulled out their military personnel in uh, the early 2000s, replaced them with Coast Guard, and though they do have um, a, a airstrip that can accommodate, say, a C-130. You can't land jets. You can't land bombers. They have a radar tower, but there's nothing overtly military about it. So the Chinese are really uh, alone in this new round of militarization. Even after construction, maintenance and durability for artificial islands are real concerns, particularly in the South China Sea, where exposure to intense typhoons and cyclones can erode shorelines and gravel walls quickly. Well, there's a couple of islands in uh, New York that were built uh, as isolation uh, spots for immigrants in about 1870s, and they're still there, and they're still doing fine, uh, but they're not in places that are struck by uh, super cyclones, super typhoons, uh, such as uh, we're dealing with in the South China Sea. So the, the, to build these things in the South China Sea, you've got to... Um, a veil of uh, some sort of stru structure that's going to protect your walls. The walls alone, just sitting in, you know, say if they, they built this thing on an underwater platform, completely underwater, uh, several meters underwater, and you just build a wall straight up, that's not going to be able to take on the force of uh, typhoons. <laughs> it just wouldn't hold up. So what they've done is they built this behind the wave-breaking reef crests on these coral reef atolls. Atoll is basically a, a big donut structure, and when you look at it from the air, you'll see that uh, the waves are breaking all the way around it uh, on this structure. So you'll see waves on the outside, waves breaking, and then virtually no waves on the inside. So the, the advantage of building on these reefs, as far as keeping your structure going, is that the reef itself is going to protect you from uh, large waves. But is it worth it? By building on a dying reef damaged by the construction process, the long-term prospects for the structure supporting the islands China has constructed are dim, as Professor McManus explains. The, the downside of this is that in building these, um, it looks like they have uh, severely weakened uh, the mechanism that's keeping that um, that uh, wave-breaking structure going. It's called a reef crest, wave-breaking reef crest. And they grow 
very slowly on the order of uh, uh, a few millimeters a year, <clears throat> and they can be torn down if they're not healthy. And so some of these uh, walls that were built around these, um, these islands are right next to the reef crest and even edging up over parts of the reef crest. So that leads us to the concern that um, the, the forces that keep the reef crest up there, uh, which involve a balance of erosion versus growth, uh, have been upset. So uh, there's a good chance that um, the islands won't last, uh, in some cases, very long because uh, with, over the next few decades, uh, uh, storm damage may wear down the crest that's protecting the walls and the walls will be breached, and the sand will come flooding out just like a uh, sandbox. But certainly what we know is that sea level is rising. Uh, it doesn't look like um, coral reefs that have been damaged, certainly, will be able to keep up with sea level. And so uh, we expect certainly within um, 50 years to 100 years, uh, sea level will be high enough that it's going to start tearing down these walls. Historically, the United States has built or expanded several islands in the Atlantic and Pacific, some of them as recently as World War II. Most of those are still above water, even though some were subjected to atomic and nuclear weapons testing. First of all, of course, many people are aware that there are several artificial islands off of Miami um, that uh, people live on, particularly wealthy communities and uh, these were built uh, mostly within the last century, and uh, they happen to be in places that aren't hit too heavily by hurricanes, so they have survived there, but they were built on uh, reef flats uh, of a sort, and although they didn't have the density of coral and, and numbers of species that we're dealing with here, they, they were, in fact, uh, acts of uh, ecological destruction. The, the classic case in the Pacific is Johnston Atoll, which is one of the sites where the U.S. was uh, doing uh, tests for uh, uh, nuclear explosions. Uh, they also had stored uh, Agent Orange there and some other chemical weapons. Um, and in that place, they have uh, there's four islands, two of which had little tiny uh, sand spits to begin with, uh, which were large, and two were built um, entirely anew. And uh, Johnston Island itself, which was the main sort of military base, landing zone, and so forth, is uh, went from 19 hectares to 241 hectares. And so all of this is happening um, in connection with the, uh, the, the nuclear testing uh, uh, from uh, 1934, well, it was a military base from 1934 onwards, and uh, uh, in the 60s to 70s, there were nuclear tests going on there. These are set back uh, pretty far, uh, something like the uh, Chinese construction at Hughes Reef, for instance, uh, or South Johnson, Johnson uh, Atoll in the Spratlys, which has a remarkably similar name. <laughs> so uh, these didn't interfere with the reef crest, and uh, they're also, uh, of course, this, this period that we've been looking at hasn't had the rapid rise of sea level that we're seeing now. 
so they have survived. They're also, Johnston Island is not in a very heavy uh, cyclonic storm area, uh, unlike um, Southeast Asia, which gets hit by uh, a very large proportion of the world's storms. So um, it did survive. It, it's not a very good model for what will happen uh, in the South China Sea because it's not really a very stormy place. And building an island often creates a cyclical disruption in the surrounding ecosystem. As John McManus explains, based on his underwater field research, it's not just the coral reefs that have been affected around the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. Anytime you do anything on a coral reef, you're going to cause damage. Uh, as I mentioned, um, there, there were reports uh, before these islands were built that the coral was dead. And uh, it turns out that they had been hit by um, the giant clam fishers. Uh, and the giant clam fishers use their boats. Uh, they anchor the back of the boat, and they swing the boats back and forth with the propeller going. So it digs up the bottom, in the process killing uh, lots of organisms. I recently returned from looking at one of these areas in the Spratly Islands, and uh, I haven't seen any coral reef damage that causes that much mortality. I swam for, for instance, 1.3 kilometers across one of these reefs, and for one kilometer there was no living invertebrates at all. No sea urchins, no sea cucumbers, no visible worms, uh, nothing. No, no corals, no soft corals, hard corals, anything. So it's very devastating. On the other hand, that kind of damage, um, once you stop doing it, uh, it turns out the corals that were involved tend to grow relatively quickly. So within a decade or so, we would have seen recovery, just as you would after a forest fire. You'd expect recovery. But in this case, it was used as one of the excuses to uh, justify building these islands, and it's turned this uh, temporary ecological setback into a death sentence for many uh, sections of coral reef. Um, nearly 14 square kilometers of some of the most important coral reefs in the world. Uh, but beyond that, uh, beyond sealing the, the fate of large parts of uh, the world's coral reefs, uh, the, the leakage from these uh, uh, islands was uh, incredible. You can see it on many satellite images, and it's, it's big plumes of sand and silt uh, moving across the other parts of the ecosystem. And the, the sand uh, that I mentioned that's constructed by uh, bits of coral and, and seaweed and so forth, uh, this sand is highly uh, damaging. Uh, it's, it's the basis for life on a coral reef, and yet when you dig it up and put it in the water column and it lands on organisms, uh, it kills all kinds of organisms. It'll even kill fish because it gets caught in the gills. So digging this up caused a lot of damage. Now, the, to build a coral reef, you have to have this, this uh, intricate interplay between the, the ecosystem and waves, currents, and the sedimentary processes. So when you build something, you're going to be disrupting the flow of water and how the waves interact and so forth. So by doing that, they've disrupted how the coral reef was built, and that is likely to lead to um, uh, sort of uh, long-term uh, ecological consequences for the, the organisms, the distribution, who can survive where, and so forth.
but the dredging itself, when they dug up that sand and silt and gravel and threw it up onto the uh, onto the land, that created enormous plumes as well, uh, covering large areas of of uh, uh, lagoons. And so, in the sand sandy lagoons, you have these um, uh, oases of coral. You, you swim for a while and then you'll see this and all the fish and so forth will be hanging around there. And you go a little further and it'll be sand and then there'll be another one of these oases. These oases are very important. They're the basis for the lagoon ecosystem. And all of those would have been killed and possibly essentially irreversibly because uh, it, it would take uh, a very long time, perhaps 100 years or so, to establish one of these oases because the bottom is so disrupted. The South China Sea is in part desirable and contested because of its fertile fishing grounds. Dr McManus talks about how building the islands has hurt fish stocks in a cyclical fashion. So there's a lot of consequences for this, and this is particularly important for the South China Sea, which is heavily overfished, and the uh, migratory fish that cut across the South China Sea such as tuna and mackerel and so forth, will stop by these, uh, these uh, reefs to, get, uh, to, to feed, to get small uh, food fish. And so by killing off these portions of coral reef, we've cut back on the available food fish for the major commercial fish, as well as, of course, uh, removing some of the areas where uh, coral reef fishing can be done and where larvae from quarry fish can be produced to help uh, maintain the heavily overfished quarry uh, populations around the South China Sea. Greg Poling agrees that the environmental cost is high and argues that, in this case, the island building has implications for all of Southeast Asia. I think it's anyone's guess how much the Chinese have spent, and I think... Professor McManus's guess is, is probably as good as anybody's, but it's worth noting that the costs here are not just for Beijing. These are these reefs are home to migratory fish populations that feed all of Southeast Asia, all of the littoral countries around the South China Sea. And one study uh, about a year ago from the University of Manila put the annual cost in lost fisheries revenue to the Philippines alone from China's reclamation at somewhere in the neighborhood of three quarters of a million dollars. And that was well before the completion of the reclamation, so it must be higher now. But however we do these estimates, the point is that this is arguably the greatest in series of purposeful environmental destruction in the ocean that we've ever seen in the course of human history. Uh, and it is wildly irresponsible and an irresponsible way to treat one's neighbors. If China chooses in the future to build up structures on one key feature in the Spratleys called Scarborough Shoal, Greg thinks the geopolitical situation could get worse. It's hard to say, but there is an awful lot of heartburn in Washington and out in the region about Scarborough Shoal. Scarborough is not part of the Spratly Islands. It is, uh, by most counts, the largest reef in, in the, the South China Sea. It was traditionally used as fishing grounds for the Filipinos, and the Filipinos will argue that it was given to them by the United States during uh, their handover to sovereignty. Regardless, the Chinese effectively seized it in 2012. They haven't put boots on the ground, so to speak. They haven't built anything. There's only five or four small rocks, depending on who you ask. But they have placed a civilian ship inside the lagoon year-round to monitor. Coast Guard have come in and chased off any Filipino fishery to try to get there. And now there's a lot of concern that this will be the next target of reclamation. 
were that to happen, the environmental impact would be uh, I mean, self-evidently terrible, uh, especially on migratory fish stocks given the placement and size of this reef. Legally, it's very worrying. Um, it One would be the first reclamation at a feature that China did not already occupy when this started. And then strategically, it's hugely worrying for the U.S. and for the Philippines. This is about 140 miles, so, or give or take, uh, from Manila, which means if you see the kind of dual use and really military building at Scarborough that you've seen at places like Fiery Cross and Mischief Reef, you're putting the capital of the Philippines, not to mention all the bases around it, including those the U.S. gain access to, within range of Chinese air power, future Chinese missile deployments. It's hugely complicating for a future Taiwan Straits crisis because it's placed Keeley uh, just south of the opening of the Bashi Strait between the Philippine main island of Luzon and Taiwan. Uh, and it completes this puzzle, uh, so to speak, of Chinese A2AD or anti-access area denial strategy where it wants to blanket the South China Sea in its radar, air, and missile coverage so that it can establish de facto control, as I said earlier. Even if not legal control, de facto control. Unfortunately, if you are building up your island in relatively shallow, unsheltered waters, the options to adjust the construction process to protect the seafloor are very limited. Dr. McManus, again. Well, the, the one thing that people sort of think, oh, this this will fix it, is um, is a silt curtain. The silt curtains have, have buoys at the top, and they're, they're basically fine mesh nets that hang to the bottom. And they always leak, um, especially around coral reefs where there's all kinds of uh, uh, structural problems. You know, it's, it's not going to be a flat bottom. You're going to be going up over coral heads and up over coral reef structures. Uh, so they're, they're somewhat helpful uh, in the uh, process of dredging as well as, you know, technically you could have put these around these, these islands. Of course, these are enormous islands, and so that uh, is unlikely to ever occur. Um, but beyond this, in, in the U.S., we have a process where um, it's required that you have multiple choices for where you're going to dredge. Uh, and presumably if you're going to build an island, but that's not done very much anymore. But where you're going to dredge, you, you have to um, have multiple po uh, potential choices and then do investigations of these selections, say three sites typically, and try to figure out which one is going to cause the less damage, the least damage, uh, if it was uh, uh, dug up. And uh, then you have to figure out uh, how much uh, of this ecosystem service per year uh, has been lost or will be lost by something you're predicting in the future. And then you have to invest in uh, replacing those ecosystem services uh, in some other way, such as uh, helping to restore uh, damaged ecosystems elsewhere or building some kind of ecosystem. Um, so we theoretically, we have a good system for handling that within the United States. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for coral reefs, it's um, more paperwork than reality because it's not actually possible to build a coral reef, uh, not even a good coral ecosystem. You can build little tiny ones, uh, but when you talk about uh, replacing a square kilometer, for instance, of coral reef, um, you're, you're 
you're talking about uh, a million square meters of complex ecosystem that has uh, settled there in an adaptive process. And it's just uh, building a few um, little structures and planting some corals that cover maybe a couple of hundred square meters. Um, it just doesn't cut it. So basically, if you build on a coral reef, you're going to cause uh, uh, long-term and often irreversible damage, and there's no way to make up for it. The calculus for governments becomes one of whether to build the island or not. Professor McManus criticizes this way of thinking. It gets to be a problem where you're in an area that has coral reefs, and then uh, you need to do something, you need to build something or cut a, a channel, and um, you don't often have a lot of options to where you're going to do it. So it becomes a choice of are you going to do it or not. And uh, one really has to uh, avoid uh, being misled by the idea that it's all going to be okay. For instance, I saw a uh, EIS statement um, a few years ago, uh, environmental impact statement. And it said uh, in the 1,000 pages in there, there was one little section that said, uh, all lost ecosystem services will be replaced, so that won't be a problem. And that's about all it said. <laughs> and of course, that, that's highly misleading. We mm -hmm. have to accept the reality that it's extremely difficult. Well, it's, it's basically impossible to replace uh, uh, any large coral reef ecosystem or the services involved, the best you can do is try hard and make sure that your investment is used in such a way that you do protect uh, other areas of coral reef. And, um, but it, it, it should, in the, in the process of deciding whether you're going to do it or not, the idea that you're going to replace it all should not really be uh, in there. You have to accept you are irreversibly damaging uh, a major ecosystem, and you have to weigh the, the potential damage to that ecosystem against the benefits of what you're doing and not be misled in the process. So, if you do end up building your own island, don't say we didn't warn you. That's it from us this week. Special thanks to Dr. John McManus of the University of Miami's Rosensteel School and Gregory Poling of the CSIS Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. Thanks as well to Lauren Abuali for editing our audio and Jeff Bean for helping write and produce. Look for more at cogitasia.com and the recently revamped CSIS.org. I'm Colm Quinn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>